Missouri's new photo identification law went into effect earlier this summer, and Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft is in charge of making sure people know about the details. The Republican statewide office holder joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking to break down the new law and talk about his transition into office. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, a podcast about Missouri politics that strongly approves of motorcycle rides around southwest Missouri farms. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me today as my co-host, as always, is... Joe Manis, who is not keen on motorcycles, and you probably have to explain the context at some point. Well, our guest might explain the context. By the way, our guest today is... Good morning. This is Jay Ashcroft. The the Secretary of State, and that is a reference... For the great state of Missouri. For the great state of Missouri. That's a reference to a photograph that I showed him before the show of his father, uh, then U.S. Senator John Ashcroft, riding on a motorcycle with then-Associated Press correspondent Scott Charton, Look it up on Google. It's 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 a great picture, and I I don't know why. I'm just I'm just starting to start this podcast it's off with a little bit of it's, levity. It's the beginning of the week. It's the beginning of the week. So this is actually the first time we've had you on the show as an elected official. Before you were just talking about what you were going to do as Secretary of State. Now you are Secretary of State, and we're going to talk about what you're doing as Secretary of State. And there's it's very notable today because tomorrow is there's a number of elections around the state. It's not a statewide election, but there's, you were mentioning there's what, close to 60? About 55 elections across the state. We want every registered voter to get out and vote. And uh, with the new voter ID law, don't worry. If you're registered to vote, you can vote. So please make your voice be heard. Okay, so we're diving right in. We're diving right in. So um, one of the big things that you've had to do as Secretary of State is inform Missourians about this new voter identification law. This was written before you were elected, um, and it became effective after voters approved a, a, an amendment to the Constitution allowing for such a law. Yes, but and, and there it was a two-pronged process. There was the the voters had to approve it, but previously, um, the Missouri General Assembly and then Governor Jay Nixon had actually come to terms on a implementation. So if it passed. Here, here would be how it would be enforced. So, so you've been stuck with doing it all now. Well, I, I wouldn't say stuck. I'm privileged okay. to be in this position. Okay. It was a okay. gift to the people of the state, and I'm happy to do it. I, we're traveling the state to make sure that every registered voter knows, regardless of what they've heard. If they're registered, they can go to their polling place on Election Day, and their vote will count because we want everyone involved. We're better off as a state when we do get everyone involved. Yeah, now I, I attended one of the events you had last week, and you were handing out these flyers, and I accidentally left it and at my desk, but... You had it, it kind of had visuals of what was allowed uh, automatically, what were you would ha- which um, forms you would have to sign some sort of declaration. 
and so forth. Do you want to quickly go through that? Because I think our listeners will will be very interested. Yeah, there are really three ways you can get about. One is if you use that government-issued photo ID, that current Missouri driver's license, Missouri non-driver's license, passport, or military ID. You'll present that. You'll sign your name as you always do, and you'll go ahead and vote. But if you don't have that, like we had in the 28th Ward Aldermanic election, we had about 6% of the people that used their voter registration cards. You can still use those other forms of identification you used prior to June 1st to vote. But there's but an you'll extra fi- step. You, you, when you sign, you'll be signing a statement. That statement says that under Missouri law, you're supposed to use your government-issued photo ID to vote. You don't possess one, and that the state will provide you one for free if you would like. You sign that statement. You go ahead and vote a normal ballot, just as if you had used that government-issued photo ID. And last but not least, what I think is a great improvement of the law is we now have provisional ballots that are required in all of our public elections. So if you show up to vote and you don't have any identification with you, there's still a means and a method for you to vote. Before June 1st, you would have been turned away. Now you can vote. Yeah, but the provisional ballots, if I understand, those aren't counted until they determine that you absolutely were a bona fide voter, correct? Right. The provisional ballots, um, after the polls closed, either the Board of Elections here in St. Louis County or St. Louis City and the county clerks around the state will go ahead, take that ballot envelope, compare the signature to your voter registration signature, and they will, as long as the signature matches, they'll be counted. Now, the, the group in between where you said they can show some forms of ID that aren't, aren't, aren't part of the golden, uh, well, the golden four... <laughs> As, as you mentioned, which is the military ID, the uh, driver's license, passport, and the non-driving free one that the state provides. Can you give a, a, just quickly a list of those? Uh, voter registration card, your uh, college vote-technical ID from a Missouri institution, not University of Missouri, but it's located in Missouri, uh, your uh, utility bill, your uh, other government-issued ID with your name and address on it. So you, you mentioned that even if it's an expired driver's license? Yes, yes. You can still use that. Okay, but they would just you would sign the affidavit. It depends on when it was expired. If it if it's expired since the last general election, then it counts as one of the top four the what you call the golden identifications. Okay. If it's expired after that, then they sign the statement. Uh, the poll pads are programmed though that when it scans that ID card, it knows which one it is, and it automatically tells the poll worker whether you need to sign a statement or not. So I wanted to ask, because tomorrow is going to be the first election under this new voter identification law for for many counties, including St. Louis County, which, as I'm sure you know, has had some issues with other things besides uh, voter ID laws. I have a two-part question. Um, From talking with St. Louis County officials, how ready are they to uh, have voters deal with this new law? And how much communication has there been between your office and St. Louis County to make sure that from a from a structural and technical perspective, everything goes as planned? We're confident that they're ready. Um, we've been in conversations with every election authority across the state. We've had uh, eight regional meetings. We've had multiple teleconferences. Our co-directors of election, the, the Democrat and Republican co-directors of elections, have met with every election authority before they have a law or before they have an election under this new law to work with them on training. We've worked with the manufacturer of the poll pads to make sure it tells the poll workers what to do. Um, I'm excited because I think there's been a lot of concern and angst by some people, and I think that Wednesday morning we're going to look back at it and say, hey, that worked. So how many elections have you had since it finally went into effect? Two. One okay. down in uh, New Madrid, and then the other was the 28th Ward Aldermanic election okay. in St. Louis City. So this is kind of the first somewhat 
big kickoff. What what happens tomorrow? We have multiple elections going on at the same well, time. Well, yeah. that's what I mean. So in other words, it's not just focusing on on just one or two. You're going to be looking at, at right. several dozen. So in those two elections, has there been any issues with the, the voter identification? You know, law? we haven't seen any at all. Uh, there was a great story that uh, the Post-Dispatch picked up. There was a lady that was leaving her polling location, and I was walking in because the St. Louis City Board of Elections gave me the permission to do that to make sure it was running well. And as I was walking in, she was walking out with a, a stroller, and I heard her say something about not having her ID. So I stopped her to make sure she knew she could vote. And the sweetest words she could say came out of her mouth. She said, yes, I know the poll workers told me I could go ahead and vote. I just wanted to go get my driver's license for later. But they, they told her so the system works. Is, there, is it a process of, like, making sure the poll workers know the details of this law? Because a lot of the poll workers are doing it for the first time. Are they, they may be doing it for not the first time, but they may not be as – up to date about this as as other people are. Is it really just a matter of making sure the poll workers know what to tell voters? It's it's a matter of one, making sure the voters know they can vote if they're registered, and two, making sure that the poll workers are ready. And that's why even before this law went into effect, even before the budget went into effect, we were having meetings around the state. We were meeting with the local election officials because we wanted to make sure that if any voter had a question at their polling place, the poll workers were ready. And, you know, when you go vote tomorrow, if you're if you're in one of the locations that's having an election, thank your poll workers. They work long days for a little bit of pay so that everyone else can vote and have their voice be heard. Yeah, it's rather fascinating. I've written some stories periodically about the the culture of the poll workers because most of them are retired. Many of them are in their 70s. And uh, I know there's been various efforts by various social secretary of states to try to get more people involved, although the type of work it is, it's difficult for someone who's got a job to to do it. But are there any things that you've been trying to do to either ignite interest or um, just kind of get more people interested in the in this part-time job? Well, as I've been going around the state, I've been asking people to be involved in it. We're trying to reinvigorate. There's a high school program for junior poll workers to help take the load off of some of our more veteran or experienced poll workers, if you will. Um, I believe it was St. Louis County had a great idea uh, when they sent out their uh, property um, forms for your personal property tax. They included a little note asking people if they wanted to be poll workers. It may have I been St. Louis City. And I think that was a great thing to do. They've seen a uh, good return on that, people volunteering, and we're trying to spread that message to the other local election authorities. I want to talk about the, the, the cost of, of making sure the, the voter ID requirement is fully funded and just the public relations campaign to make sure people know about it. Do you think that there was enough money put in by legislators and ultimately by the governor's signature to make sure that there's enough free voter IDs for everybody and to make sure that there's enough advertising for this law. I think we, what we've seen clearly so far, there has been. Um, we've had some people asking for IDs. We've been providing those IDs. There was $100,000 that was provided to the Department of Revenue, $100,000 that was provided to the Missouri Department of Vital Records, and then $1.5 million to the Secretary of State's office for other underlying documents and for advertising. Um, so, yeah, I think so. We haven't seen a great rush on, on, on uh, IDs, although we're hoping that more people will request them and we're going to be reaching out to people after the election for people to vote without having them. Uh, secondly, if you really look at how the law is written and how it works, if you know nothing about this law and just go in to vote like you have in the past, you're going to be able to vote. I, I look at this a lot like Y2K where people are, oh, no, there's a problem, there's a problem, and then Y2K comes and goes and it's like, oh, 
it worked. If you don't know anything about this law and go to your polling place and just try to vote like you normally do, you'll get to vote and your vote will count. Do you have any estimates on how many people have requested free IDs yet? Um, I don't have the final numbers on that. Um, I was moving this weekend, I'm afraid, so I didn't get those final numbers. But when I went and got my driver's license uh, renewed about two weeks ago, the office I went to had given out 14 of the Missouri non-driver's licenses so people could use them for voting. Uh, what I can tell you is that as people call us up, we're, we're, we're making a record of that, and we're working through the process and following up to make sure they get their IDs. Now, one of the things I wanted to <coughs> clarify, one of the reasons for the, for the $1.5 million is because in some cases people need to get copies of their birth certificates from other states. And that can be, I mean, having children that were, one of my children was born in another state, it can be complicated and expensive, and it can take a while. Right. Yeah, it's and, n- and it's not just the, the the birth certificates, but there are other underlying documents they might need. And the legislature, for example, well, I mean, there there are some marriage certificates we might need. There's some uh, naturalization document or two that people might need. Um, anything that they might have to be, have to get that driver's license, the legislature empowered us to get those underlying documents for individuals. We actually make the phone calls. We reach out to the the other locations, the other government entities, and pay for them. The idea is that the government is going to find those people, and we're helping them do that, that don't have those IDs. We're going to provide them for free and bring them more into our society. Now, isn't there an exemption, though, for people who are born before a certain date? There is not an exemption date anymore. Okay. Um, however, okay. That's good. That's one of the reasons I asked. If you're 70 or above, you get that Missouri non-driver's license. It will never expire. Uh, okay. I, I wanted to just ask because— the law that we're talking about is a statute, and it could be changed. I know that's only been about six or seven months, but is there anything about this law that you would think may need to be changed or, or tweaked a little bit? I know that that would be the legislature that does this, but as Secretary of State, you could have a lot of influence on that. Or is the system that was 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 set out last year, in your opinion, pretty good and not need any change changes right now? Um, we will definitely be following up with local election authorities and looking at the numbers and, and, and revisiting how the process is working with all of our partners, local election authorities, Department of Revenue, Missouri Department of, of Vital Records. Right now, I'm not in favor of making a change because I want people to, to get familiar with it. Uh, if there is confusion, I don't want to increase that confusion by changing it right now. But clearly, we'll look at the data. We'll look at how elections turn out and say, is there something we should be doing better? I think government should always be doing that. Now, one of the controversies about this uh, from the get-go is the fact that it doesn't really apply to absentee ballots. And frankly, if you look over the accusations of vote fraud over the years, the bulk of them, I'm not saying all of them, but the bulk of them have involved absentee ballots. And because, um, without getting into the details, but because other people allegedly can fill them out or do other things. Are there any things that you think should be done uh, to... Uh, deal with the absentee ballot issue since those are kind of exempt from this? Or do you think that that's kind of an overblown um, concern? Um, I do think we need to be looking at absentee ballots. Um, The concern, though, is it's harder with absentee ballots to make sure that you make it harder to cheat while being certain that every registered voter can still vote. Uh, With in-person, it's a lot easier to make sure. And I believe that we should do everything we can to... uh, tighten the security of our ballot box, but we have to stay true to that principle that if you're registered, you can vote. Um, I'm happy to look at ideas for that. We will continue to do that. 
but we have to find a way that we can guarantee people that if they're registered, they can still vote. I know one issue that I think I asked about last year was whether it should be allowable for someone to sunshine the envelopes, which was the big thing last year with the Bruce Franks, uh, Penny Hubbard situation. Do you still think that- Which involved absentee Which balance. involved absentee balance. The reason I bring that up is like, I understand the, the reason for that, but I could also see somebody sunshining all those envelopes in a close race, going to those voters and possibly harassing them. Is that something that you think the legislature should be taking a look at or is that just not going to happen in your opinion? You know, I love how you transition. That was a great because <laughs> I think we can talk about another subject at the same sure. time. I think that, that when it comes to voter privacy, obviously we don't record how you vote. We right. don't record the type of ballot you pick. We don't want to know that. But I think that with what's going on at the federal level with the Commission on Presidential or Election Integrity and the request for the public uh, voter data, I think it's a great opportunity for us to have a discussion with the legislature about what should be public information. And maybe there's information that should be public as we have it now and sunshineable and other information that shouldn't be sunshineable, but it should be available to law enforcement or to government entities when they're looking at fraud or other types of malfeasance. That was totally unintentional segue, by okay. the way. <laughs> well, because a couple of things, because I know I'd written a couple of stories early on about what the state was going to comply with and what it wasn't. Uh, regarding this White House commission, which has come under fire. Uh, now, in, 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 in Missouri's case, just so our listeners know, because I know what you told me, but I'd rather hear it from you, um, just a quick summary of which types of information would be provided and examples of stuff that would not. Okay. We would not provide Social Security even last four. We would not provide how you voted, what type of ballot you received, Republican or Democrat, you don't do party affiliation in Missouri. We will give first name, last name, date of birth, the elections in which you've received a ballot, your congressional district. That's the sort of information that we give out. Uh, and it's regularly given out. Any Anyone here in Missouri that wants to get it uh, can go ahead and send us in writing a request. They have to affirm that they will not use it for commercial purposes. They pay us $35 and we'll send it to them. Did the commission have to pay $35 for that information? Uh, they haven't paid it yet, but we've notified them that there's a $35 charge. I, I'm sure that they have the $35 charge. But I have noticed on Twitter that was a question about whether you charged them the same amount as everybody else. Do you want to make it clear you did? Is that uh, correct? We are. Uh, well, not. that's actually not true. It used to be that press organizations were able to ask for this information, and they got it for free. Understood. Um, and this information has probably been given out about 1,000 times in the last 12 years. Um, I don't believe that anyone should get it for free if the citizens of the state have to pay for it. So it's our new policy that everyone pays the same. If you're a politician, you have to pay for it. If you're the press, you pay for it because you shouldn't get special privileges over the residents of the state of Missouri. So um, what's your view of the controversy over the – now, one of the, one, one of the con contentions regarding the White, the White House Commission is the concern that the information would not be secure enough. I mean, that, that, that they don't have enough – secure things in place to uh, avoid a huge hack where potentially millions of voters, uh, granted maybe not everything, but a lot of their information could end up in the wrong hands, in theory, because of lack of protections on the computers. What's your take on that? Well, first, my understanding with the, the latest letter we've received is that they are going to be holding that data in a different facility and with a different capacity to, to more fully protect it. Um, but going back to what I said about I think it's a good time for us to have a discussion on what should be public information, I think that most people are surprised to, uh, to know what is already out there and what is regularly given out. 
um, that there are at least hundreds, if not thousands, of databases that have all this information that are already out there. That, you know, frankly, it'd be easier for a hacker to just go ahead and request the information from the states than it would be to hack the uh, election commission. They could just pay the thirty-five bucks and they have all of Missouri's data, and they didn't even have to do anything wrong, as long as they're not going to use it for commercial purposes. <laughs> so, is, is is the is what you're? How do you enforce that? Yeah. Um, well, the attorney general helps us enforce that. Okay. So are you saying that maybe one thing the legislature should look at is not making this information publicly available anymore? I think the legislature should, and that the people have, I think, made their voice known and have requested. I think we should revisit what is public and what isn't public to determine whether or not we have the right information public. And, and that's something I'm very happy to work with the legislature, and I've been talking and meeting with a lot of citizens about it. Because I think that that was one thing... I think a lot of people that don't like this commission asked your office, like, why do you have to turn this over? And your response has been, we don't really have a choice because under the law, if somebody requests this and pays the $35, pays the $35 <laughs> you have to turn it over. Essentially. You know, the scary thing to me was how many people said, I don't want you turning it over to this group, but they were fine if we turned it over to another group. And, um, you know, I understand that politics gets pretty heated and it's partisan, but as Secretary of State, I have to treat everyone equally. I'm not allowed to say, well, I'm going to enforce the law against you because I like you, but for someone else, I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to do it because I don't like you. I have to treat everyone equally. I mean, it's it's just like what we do with initiative petitions. I mean, I don't put what I would necessarily want the language to be. I have to try to play it down the middle so that the people of the state decide. I, I know that some of your Secretary of State colleagues have reacted differently. I know for example, and I'm reading this off of a, a newspaper, Mississippi, Mississippi Secretary of State Delbert Hosman, is that how you pronounce it? Hosman, Hosman, yeah. response to Donald Trump's commission seeking info on all states registered voters is to, quote, go jump in the Gulf. He doesn't <laughs> pr- plan to provide such records. I want to make it clear, he's a Republican Secretary of State. I know that there's been some Democratic Secretary of States that don't like this either. What's been kind of your your thought on how your your colleagues have reacted to this with, with knowing the fact that you're in a situation where you have to give this information because you're treating everybody equally. Well, the first thing I'd say is that probably 30 to 35 states are complying with this and they're giving over that public information that was requested. I mean, if you if you read news articles, you'll see news articles that say I'm not complying and you'll see news articles that say I am complying. We are complying with the state law and giving over what was asked, which was only that public information. You know, there's a lot of politics involved. Um, you know, maybe Delbert's up for election in two years and he's worried about that or, or a year, less, I should say. That would be less than that. They, they vote in uh, odd numbered years. Yeah. Now, and one of the interesting things about this, of course, uh, the Secretary of State of Kansas. Uh, Chris Kobosh is the one who's in charge of this, and, and he's been a lightning rod for various um, accusations about whether or not he's, you know, pushing some of the vote fraud conspiracy theories and other things. I had interviewed him because he was actually at one of the conventions last month. If I recall, I mean, last year, and I think wasn't he speaking on your behalf or at least the ticket? This was... Um, if I recall, in, in uh He in came Branson. down to, uh, he was at the Branson at the state convention. Yeah, and I got to yeah. interview him, and I actually talked to him about some of this. I've got audio. And just as somewhere. an aside, he used to write legislation for then-Republican state senator Chris Coster dealing with immigration back in 2007. Continue, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> There's always neat little factoids that come out. A, a little fact that got kind of, you know, not reported during so, the election, so but the, continue. So the, the fact that you know him, my point is, the fact that you know him— does that kind of ease some of your, I mean, 
Do you think that some of the accusations against him are overblown? Have you been had a chance to talk to him about this? Uh, I have talked to him. He is a friend. Um, with regard to following the law, whether or not he's a friend doesn't matter. Right. I have to treat everyone equally. Um, but yeah, you know, my understanding and my, all of my associations with him, I, uh, he has been an individual that I believe will follow the facts. And that's what we ought to have. I mean, this is a contentious issue. We have smart people on both sides. Let's have a big uh, bipartisan commission look at it. Let's get the data and let's find out once and for all whether or not this is a problem. If it is a problem, how big of a problem it is. And move on. If there's a problem, fix it. If not, move on to something else. I would think that, you know, Republicans that say there is vote fraud would like to be able to say, look, here's proof of it. Look at this great bipartisan commission. Democrats that say it doesn't exist would be happy if the commission comes down and says, look, there is no fraud. Let's just get to the answer and move on. I do have to ask, though, this commission was created by a president who has made claims like, I'm not sure I actually lost the popular vote, which, if true, meant that literally millions of votes throughout the country were miscounted or, or voted illegally, which has been, I'm going to put this mildly, that's been a, a contention that has been criticized immensely. So if this commission is based off basically a questionable premise to begin with, are you really confident that you're going to be able to get an actual facts that's going to solve this issue once and for all. Well, I mean, I, I know Secretary Kobach, and I'm pretty sure that the President of the United States has other things that are going to be taking up his time than running this commission. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like it's, this is a new thing for a president to have a commission on elections. Our former president, President Obama, had one, as I recall. And they always look at this. And I, I think that President Obama was probably looking at different things uh, than President Trump would want looked at. I want to work with anyone that is truly trying to make our elections better. And regardless of what preconceived motions uh, Secretary Kobach might have, he will follow the facts. And we should always be trying to do the best job we can. So I will follow the law, and I'm happy to have people that are concerned about making sure elections are open and fair. Do you feel like that there's a widespread problems with voter fraud in Missouri? You know, we don't know how much there is. Um, we don't have an institutionalized way to look for it. We don't have requirements for vote fraud allegations, even convictions, to be forwarded to the Secretary of State's office. Um, most of what I know, I've read from, I've been look, Googling things, or I'm, I'm in a county like, you know, Jefferson County had an individual just, I don't know, maybe it's three months ago, was, was tried. He had actually uh, filled out an affidavit that he had voted two ballots in the same election. He'd stuffed them into the ballot box at the same time. I don't, don't know that they actually counted. Um, I only knew about that because I was in Jefferson County talking to individuals that were involved in that and then knew where to look for that information. But we know what happens. Would the photo, or, or in the case of the Rizzo one in Kansas City, which you often bring up, would the photo ID law have prevented either one? In what is done right now, the photo ID law is just for identity. Um, so this photo ID law would, no, it would not stop all fraud. Um, if you look at the constitutional amendment that was passed, Amendment 6, that I really tried to help push as a candidate, um, that allows us to, to prove identity, uh, residence, and citizenship. Yeah, but that isn't what was passed, correct? Well, that amendment was passed, but the statutory implementation, exactly. the law that goes into effect on June 1st, doesn't have all that. Um we cannot get rid of the possibility of vote fraud with one thing. I liken it. It's a little bit different, but I was a professor of mechanical engineering and I gave tests. 
I had good students. They weren't a bunch of scumbags. I wasn't worried that they were all going to cheat, but I also didn't want there to be any sort of incentive or temptation for them to. And in case someone did want to cheat, I wanted to make it hard for them. And I think we should make it as hard to cheat in our elections as we can while we still make sure that every registered voter can vote. Before we get to our next topic, we're going to take a short break and we're going to hear from me about some of the stories Joe and I are working on. On stlpublicradio.org, be sure to read my story about how some St. Louis County mayors believe that Proposition P funds should be funneled to high crime areas, not places with large populations. And be sure to check out Joe Manis' story about how the average home value in St. Louis County is the highest in nearly a decade. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Politically Speaking on iTunes by typing in Politically Speaking in the iTunes podcast search. And we're back with Politically Speaking with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Um, We're going to talk a little bit now about the Safe at Home program, which I know has been a topic of discussion in your first few months in office. First of all, explain what the program is and what it's meant to do. The Safe at Home program is an address confidentiality program. It also includes mail forwarding. Uh, for individuals that have been victimized by heinous crimes such as rape, uh, human trafficking, uh, stalking, and domestic violence. The idea there is to separate individuals from their abuser, to make it more difficult for their abuser to find them and to attack them and to continue to abuse them. So once they enter that program, they move, and then the state keeps that Um, address where they are, all state records, the judicial records at the state level, they don't have to use their actual physical address. They use an address that's given to them by the Secretary of State's office so that if someone finds that address that they're using in government documents and other things online, it'll just send them to the Secretary of State's office. It won't actually take them to where that individual is so they can be victimized again. So, okay, so let's, so if a person, uh, let's say, uh, who's trying to get away from a uh, abusive relationship or a stalker or uh, a, an assault. So they change their address. So they're trying to get mail at a new thing. So would the safe at home, like prevent somebody from tracking online where their new addresses? I mean, I'm trying to, I want to make sure I'm clear on how this works. It just makes it more difficult. Right now, there's so much information that's online. And so now when they file anything with the state for their driver's license, for their voter registration, if they're they're in civil court and state court, they don't have to use their real address. They can use an address that we give them. So when people find that address online, they're finding the P.O. box for the Secretary of State's office and not where that, that individual and possibly their family are actually living. Oh, okay. Okay. So in other words, so if they got their new driver's license, that information, though, would not be available online as far as what their address on that was. Is. No, and and they're so like when they go in to vote, they can't. They have a special ca- a code that's on their driver's license or it's on their 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 uh, safe at home card. They they give that code to the poll worker. The poll worker actually has to 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 contact our office for us to to verify that individual because we want to make sure that their address is not given out by something that the state has done. Um, part of what we're doing, though, also is we're looking for uh, federal changes to the law. We've reached out to to Senator uh, Blunt and to the the uh, uh, congressional uh, individuals to get them to introduce a law that would make the federal government abide by state address confidentiality programs. Not that this federal government would create a new program. We don't need that. 
but that if someone was in a state address confidentiality program like Missouri's or 35 other states, they could use that P.O. box or that special address on federal forms and filings. How many people are we talking about who are involved right in the program? Right now, you've got 1,600 participants in the program in Missouri. We've served maybe 4,000 over 10 years. The 10-year uh, anniversary is coming up on August 28th. So I want to talk about why this program has been in the news. There was a St. Louis County judge order, I think in April. I don't know if it necessarily struck down the law, but I think that it it, it complicated your ability to enforce it. So kind of explain what happened and what happened afterwards. Uh, last year, actually, originally a judge in, in, in St. Louis County had ordered an individual that was a participant in the Safe at Home program to disclose her address publicly. Disclosing that address publicly would then, of course, make it available to the abuser. Uh, there were several court hearings. We, the, 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 the individual in the program fought that. Um, our office and the attorney general's office got involved in that. The, the, the judge had misread the law, had uh, or actually ordered a, a witness to testify to facts. That witness had no firsthand knowledge of. It was uh, hearsay evidence. Uh, and then just misunderstood the law. So we were fighting to protect that individual participant's address and the program. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we had legislation that was introduced in the Missouri legislature with, what, three, four weeks left in the session mm -hmm. that granted us the affirmative right to intercede in court cases. So when something like this happened, we didn't have some individual that was already running scared from an abuser that was just trying to, to get their life together. But our office could stand in their place in court and say, this is why that address shouldn't be given out. So did it pass? That legislation passed. We'll be doing more legislation next year, but the legislature did a phenomenal job getting it passed at the very end of the session. So what will that mean for the case going forward? I don't. Has it been resolved that, yet? That was a case that was a dissolution of marriage case. Um, so that's, that case has ended. Um, that that lady has moved on to a different location that is no long, that is not public and she's in our program. Um, but it makes it easier in future cases for when something happens. You know, when you think of these individuals and, and how they've been victimized, a lot of times they don't have a whole lot of political power. They don't have a whole lot of money. They're just trying to get by with some really terrible things happening to them. And this allows, from a legal standpoint, we now have the right to go to court on their behalf and say, wait a minute. We need to go through the right process before you disclose their address to make sure that they're not further abused. So the other thing um, that I wanted to talk about, which is admittedly not as heavy of a topic, but still kind of interesting to people who are in politics, is the state blue book will not be printed this year. Now, I, I can actually explain what the blue book is. It's it's literally a blue book with the exception of 93 to 94 when it was, it was pink, pink. And I have a copy of that, too. Um, that basically gives information about state elected office holders, the salaries of state employees, and also neat historical facts about Missouri. Yeah, and it also has uh, regional details, for example, like you can look up Jefferson County and it'll have uh, the names of all like of the different uh, office holders, um, their office numbers, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, there's there's quite, and, and, and also on the, on the political side, like the committee people. And so it's, it's a thick 
book. It's it's usually like 1,500 pages, I think. And the bottom line is because of budget constraints, it will be available online, but will not be printed this year. Is that correct, first of all? Yes. And we are updating. All that information will be available to the people of the state and anybody that has online access. What I would also suggest, though, for people that don't know it, we have the Missouri Accountability Portal, which is a great way to find out information also about how the state's spending money besides the Blue Book. I just got to ask, is there any disappointment that it's not being printed? Because I know we can kind of laugh about this and say it's kind of an irrelevant trinket that's not being done, but it also is a pretty long-standing tradition in Missouri state government that this is available in written form. And it's not the first time this hasn't happened, but I'm just curious as somebody who issues this, your thoughts about this development. Well, we're, we're going to make sure, first and foremost, that the people have access to all that information. We want to make sure that the people of the state have access to that. You know, beyond that, um, it's the people's money. It's, it's not my money. It's not your money. It's all of our money. And I think it's appropriate for us to look at expenditures and say, should we really be spending taxpayer dollars on that? Or should we be trying to, to not spend it and give it back to taxpayers so they can make better use of it? And I think this is just one case where he said, you know what? We ought to let the people keep their money and, uh, and not print this. Has there been much of a controversy about it, about the fact that there isn't one? I know that legislators often used to, they, they were each allowed a certain number of copies and they would hand them out to... Supporters, and, and I think by me whoever. even bringing this topic up, I think it's kind of showing my bias that I enjoyed looking at them them too. But to uh, continue to answer Joe's, you question. know, I, I love the historical aspect of them. I love looking at the old ones. Uh, you know, not just the uh, the ones that were pink for a bit there, but we have the, the Mizzou green edition. Ones. Yeah, we, we had, had the, the green, green ones, ones back when with Kirk Secretary Patrick's. of State Kirkpatrick. Yes. Um, you know, there hasn't been a great outcry about it, and that's probably because the information is available. Um, and, you know, we just we want to do the best we can. We want to make sure that people have access to that information. But we need to do it frugally because it's their money. Now, um, I know when you first took office, there had been a little bit of controversy about some changes you made in the securities division. Uh, have things kind of settled down or just kind of your thoughts about how things are going since you took office? And are, are there any surprises? You know, I'm, I'm very happy with how the securities department is going. One of the things that we've started is our uh, Vulnerable Citizen Services Unit. Uh, securities departments like that have normally just focused on the elderly because we said, you know what, they're kind of a vulnerable population group. And it's good to focus there, but we wanted to expand that. We wanted to, we're working with the Wolfner Library for the visually impaired because if people are visually impaired, that might make it easier for people to go after them. So we're making sure that our, our information is in Braille so that they have access to that and they have it on the the audio tapes that you can get out of the Wolfner Library. We're looking for maybe people that are English as a second language to make sure that we're getting material out to help protect them uh, from securities individuals that would prey on them in, in, an, in an inappropriate manner. Um, so we're really happy about that. I think you have to do three things. One, you need to help securities industries uh, act the right way because you want those jobs. Those are great jobs to have in the state of Missouri. Two, you have to help educate individuals so it's not easy for them to be taken advantage of. And three, if we have bad actors, we have to go after them with a big hammer of government and tell them no and get uh, uh, make sure that the people of the state are recompensed. So th we've been happy to do that. Sorry. I think what Joe is alluding to is the fact that you're, you're – I think it's called the com Commissioner of Securities used to work at Stiefel Nicholas, which I think had – been investigated by the Secretary of State before. What I've also heard, though, from even some Democrats is that the fact that Mr. Minnick has worked in the security industries for a lot probably gives him more knowledge to do the job than just some attorney that may have only peripheral knowledge of it. How has it worked out so far, given the uproar, I guess, at the beginning of your term? And 
I don't even know if it was an uproar, but there were there was some criticism for it. You know, I think it's really beneficial to have someone in that position of responsibility that understands the industry, that understands uh, that there are people that do it well and do it in a way that creates opportunity for the people of the state, but they're also bad actors and that we need to know how to divide those. Um, you know, I just did not want to use that as some sort of political position to reward someone that had helped me politically. I felt that that was an important position, and we needed someone that would serve the people of the state, and there was an outcry from people that had had it from a political perspective. So you're now, what, in in your seventh month, I think? Thereabouts, yeah. Is there anything that surprised you now that you're in the job? You know, I, I was always thrilled with the possibility that it could be Secretary of State. I did not realize how exciting it would be and how just uplifting. Because as I tell people regularly, I'm not putting people in prison. I'm not raising their taxes. I'm making sure that elections run smoothly, that we have good public libraries, that our securities industry isn't taking advantage of people, and that it's easy to start a business. I get to be the good guy. I'm so pleased for the privilege of serving. Yeah, now one one quick thing. This is kind of a political angle, sort of, but not exactly. Uh, there's... You guys have had to deal, it looks to me like, a record number of initiative petitions. Yes. It looks like there's already over 200, 220? Uh, we're around 240 now. We okay, actually had a 53-page petition turned in last week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and so, and these are the ones that are cleared for circulation. Now, just so people know, usually only a fraction end up right. being um, circulated. But has that caused any additional paperwork problems, A, and B, have you thought, I mean, that are you thinking about introducing any sort of legislation to make it maybe a little more difficult or that people have to pay? I'm not advocating any of this, but I'm just interested in your thoughts because we're one of the few states that have. I should step back and say there are about 240 that have been filed, not all of those okay. have been approved for circulation. Um, but was it last week we got one or maybe a week and a half ago that had 53 pages? How in the world are we supposed to, in a hundred words, explain concisely and completely 53 pages of changes of law to the general public? I mean, I really made it uh, something that we would focus on making sure that yes meant yes okay. and no meant no and that we used as much as possible kind of vernacular, simple language. We are looking at making changes, but how do you make a change that still makes sure that we, the people, have that safety valve? Without making it with making it more difficult for people to game the system by filing fifty or sixty different petitions. Well, in fact, one of the interesting things I did want to ask you is because uh, in, in the battle over right to work, which is a um, uh, a bill that the has, has been put into law that would bar unions and employers from requiring everyone in a bargaining unit to pay dues. Now there is a referendum that they're collecting signatures on to block enforcement of the law, which is supposed to go into effect later this month. Then there's a separate initiative petition drive to uh, for a constitutional amendment that would prevent it from happening in the future. There have been at least two court cases on it. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because you've been kind of in an unusual position as a conservative Republican. You actually have and labor have been on the same side on the court fights. Um, and so far, you've sort of won. This has to do with your wording. I'm just interested in your thoughts about that because so far the judges have said you have liked your wording. I'm just interested in this rather odd marriage, so to speak. The first thing I would say is the law hasn't gone into effect. Um, it won't right. go into effect until the 28th of August. And if signatures are turned in for the referendum, that will kind of stay the law going into effect. And if the signatures are verified, then it won't go into effect. It will be dependent upon whether or not the people vote for it in November of next year. 
Um, but with regard to the language, you know, I really try to be very careful to, to it is our position that we are not for the right to work people. We're not for the union people. We are making sure that if it gets on the ballot, the people of the state know what they're voting on. Um, so it just so happened that the union agreed with our language, but we're fighting for our language, not for either side. That's that's up to the people of the state. Now, with the referendum, uh, as as we mentioned, the law is scheduled to go into effect on August 28th. But if they turn in those signatures, I mean, how long is it going to take you to figure out? I mean, because we're talking tens of thousands of signatures and arguably hundreds of thousands that they may turn in potentially that you're going to have to go through. What will be the process and how long do you think that will take? Um, the first thing we'll do when we'll get the signatures is we're going to, we have a secured room set up where we have uh, control of who has access, who has the keys. Um, we only have two keys to that. Um, then what we do is we scan all of those sheets so that we can send out signatures to the local election authorities to check the number of signatures. Um, I got to tell you, what I'm hoping for is either they only turn in 20,000 valid or they turn in 400,000. So either way, it's clear what happens with it. We just don't want it to be really close. Well, that, that, that brings up an important question. If they turn in signatures, let's say August 15th, I'm just throwing out a, a date there. It's clearly it's clearly going to take longer to verify these signatures till August 28th. Is that correct? Yeah, I would assume so. So what will happen if you realize that they have enough signatures, say, on September 10th? Would the law be frozen after it went into effect? Like, what's the process there? If they turn in what are putatively enough signatures, what possibly are enough signatures, okay, and the, the minimum law will is, be stayed. And the minimum They're is gonna roughly... They're going to roughly 100,000. Right. I, yeah, I wanted you to say that. So go um, ahead. So if they turn in what, at least on the face, could be enough, then the law will be stayed. It won't go into actually into effect. And then we will go through the process of verifying whether or not they have enough signatures from six of the eight congressional districts. If they have enough, once we know, we'll announce that, and then it will be put on the ballot in uh, November of next year. If we find out that they don't have enough, then the law will go into effect. And clearly, I'm not prejudging which way it'll be. It's no. just... So this process could arguably take months or weeks, or do you have kind uh, it, of a general I, I would say it'll take weeks. Yeah. Well, uh, that, I actually am very appreciative that you gave us that information because I think it's important for people to know that process, which is going to be heating up in the next few weeks. We'd like to thank you for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. Uh, and for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How would people follow you on Twitter? Uh, well, officially, it's Missouri SOS. And unofficially, it's at Jay Ashcroft Mo. Now, before I sign off, I want to do a little quiz before we play the outro music. I did a little bit of research and tried to find out what was the number one song in the country on July 12, 1973, which happens to be your birthday. Was it A, Killing Me Softly with his song by Roberta Flack, B, Crocodile Rock by Elton John, C, Will It Go Around in Circles by Billy Preston, or D, Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group? Joe, which one do you think it was? Uh, I'm thinking probably number um, two. So, Crocodile Rock by Elton John. Uh, Mr. Secretary, what was the number one song on your birthday? I have no clue. I'll go with Killing Me Softly. You are both wrong. It will. It was Will It Go Around in Circles by Billy Preston. <laughs> we'll play that song out. Until then, so long. Thank you. I've got a song I ain't got no melody.
Ha ha 